Okay, so yeah, this, this is the first in a number of seminars of the next few weeks on health environment and development, which is something that we ran last year with a, a good deal of success. Um, topics that kind of impact on you know, public health issues, environmental issues, developmental issues, or preferably all three at the same time. Um, so this series, this, this is a little bit of a, a waiting towards food in the, in the, um, the seminars that we've got in this year because it's, a, it's, a, it's an element that I think cuts across those, those three areas very well and releases a lot of different issues that, that can be talked about. Um, essentially the seminar series feeds in quite well as well to a, a module that is um, happening next year that can be taken that could be an optional module that could be taken um, for a variety of MSc courses, the Global Health Sciences, and some MSc courses from International Development and from the School of Geography and the Environment. So if people are interested in the course and they want to take the optional module, we encourage you to do so. It, uh, it will be tackling similar issues as what uh, we will be showing in the seminar series. Um, as Ish said, my background is in nutrition and in health. So I'm from the Department of Public Health. So my presentation is mainly going to focus on the kind of health side of things, also touching on the environmental impact of, of meat as well. But we're going to have a speaker later on this term called Tara Garnett from the University of Surrey, who is extremely well knowledgeable on the impact of food systems on environmental impacts. Um, so I'll leave it to her to really kind of go into the details of kind of food and health, uh, sorry, food and the environment. And I'll, I'll focus more on food and health at this point. Um, and also, I'm an epidemiologist and a mathematician, so it's a bit quantitative-based, this, uh, this slides that I'm going to be showing you. I make no apologies for that. This is just my background and who I am. So anyway, so this is what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to start by going over the, um, the, um, the role of meat and health, really kind of the mechanisms of, um, of how meat can impact on the health of the individual. Uh, looking at saturated fats, salt, carcinogens, and... Also, the role kind of fruit and veg plays, which, okay, fruit and vegetables, obviously, is not meat, but uh, how these two areas are kind of related. Um, I'll then briefly touch on the role of meat in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, in terms of climate change, obviously. Um, and then we'll look at um, three different dietary scenarios that have been proposed by the Committee on Climate Change for environmentally sustainable diets. And then we'll talk about a project that we've done, which is modelling the health impact of those environmentally sustainable diets. So starting to look at some of the co-benefits of both health and for the environment of reducing meat, uh, meat consumption. And I'll wrap it up with some conclusions and we can have a discussion afterwards. So starting with meat and health, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do a bit of a review of the evidence, the, uh, the kind of nutritional, epidemiological evidence, mostly drawn from observational studies, uh, mostly kind of cohort designs, looking at what people eat and then following them up for health outcomes. Okay, so saturated fat to start with. Um, so yes, so, so livestock, meat, dairy, this, these are the kind of the, the, the main sources of saturated fat in the diet. I thought I'd just kind of, not all, all meats have got the same kind of level of saturated fat in there. I just thought I'd pick some examples just to kind of demonstrate kind of saturated fat content within some, some foods. Um, not that many people eat lard these days, but if you did, it's very bad for you. Um, yeah, the, there's recently been a Danish um, fat tax that's been imposed. It got a bit of press just last week. It just kind of came into action. It's been described as a fat tax. It's been described as something which is going to combat obesity levels in Denmark. 
Actually, it's neither of those things. It's based on saturated fat content rather than fat content, and really kind of the prime aim is to get saturated fat levels down in order to reduce cholesterol levels. And the level that they're imposing it on is if foods have saturated fat levels greater than 2.3 grams per 100 grams. As you can see there, that, that would affect most meat products. Um, the kind of more processed areas down there are the sausage rolls where you wrap them in pastry, obviously you've got more like uh, areas of saturated fat that can get into the food. But still, it's a, it's, meat is the kind of the primary source of saturated fat in the diet. Um, so what happens when you eat saturated fat? Well, it increases your cholesterol levels, okay? So there has been many, many studies where basically you get people into um, uh, controlled diet situations where you say, okay, we're going to give you try and give you as a similar a diet as possible in different control groups, but we're going to manipulate one of the diets so it's as close to the controlled diet as possible, but it's increased levels of saturated fat, or conversely, decreased levels of saturated fat, and see what happens to people's cholesterol levels. And in a meta-analysis of studies like that, you see that there's a strong um, relationship between saturated fat levels in the diet and cholesterol levels of individuals. Um, the regression coefficient there, 0.067, doesn't tell you all that much. In translation, what it means is if you get a kind of 5% increase in saturated fat level in the diet, then you're increasing your total cholesterol levels by about 0.34 millimoles per litre. Now, the, the level where um, a doctor would be concerned about kind of cholesterol levels in the diet is probably about 5 millimoles per litre, so 0.34 is a, is, a, is a reasonably big jump in, in cholesterol levels. So it's, it's, it's a, a well-established relationship, really, between saturated fat content and, um, and, and cholesterol levels. But it is also important what saturated fat is replaced with in the diet. So this is kind of looking at, uh, again, this is kind of doing a meta-analysis of different um, studies where they replace saturated fat with different options. And um, it doesn't actually show up all that well here in, in, in terms of the writing, but I'll, I'll talk you through what these, these kind of do. Um, there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. So the bad cholesterol is the um, HLDL, sorry, LDL cholesterol. I always get LDL and HDL mixed up. The bad cholesterol is LDL cholesterol, which gives you atherosclerosis, which is what kills you from heart disease. Good cholesterol is HDL cholesterol. <coughs> it takes cholesterol out of your body. Yeah? And what saturated fat does is it increases both of these. So this is saturated fat content in the diet. This is relationship with the bad cholesterol. And the more you eat saturated fat, the more bad cholesterol you have in your blood. And the reverse is true for monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats, similar for trans fats. But it also increases your good cholesterol levels, as does mothers and puppers, whereas trans fats decrease your good cholesterol, which is why trans fats are really, really bad for you. So some people like this relationship here, which is a kind of ratio of bad cholesterol to good cholesterol. Some people like that as an epidemiological measure of heart disease risk, essentially. And there's some suggestion that if you just replace saturated fat with carbohydrate, rather than replacing it with other non-saturated fats, then you're actually not getting that much cardiovascular benefit. It's debatable, really, because what it is doing for definite is it's increasing your total cholesterol levels. And if you look at the kind of um, epidemiological data about total cholesterol levels and um, heart disease risks and cardiovascular disease risks, it's pretty clear. This is a uh, meta-analysis. This is the Prospective Studies Collaboration, where they've, they've combined 61 prospective studies. They've got over 50,000 vascular deaths here, so you've got a really big sample size, basically. Um, and over here, these are kind of age-specific relationships between um, cholesterol levels and heart disease mortality, and they're very clearly 
log linear. So in other words, the kind of for every extra one millimole of um, cholesterol in your blood, you're just about doubling your heart disease risk, and it keeps on going up and up. There doesn't seem to be a kind of top suggestion um, of risk. Uh, and that's the same for all age groups there. Not so much of an association with stroke. Stroke is kind of more associated with salt and blood pressure levels, but some sort of relationship as well between cholesterol levels and stroke, particularly ischemic stroke. Okay, so that's saturated fat. What about salt? Um, well, salt obviously appears kind of naturally in, in some meats. It's, 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 you know, animals need sodium to get around, uh, as do we. Um, so there is some sort of natural salt in meats, but the real point where salt gets into meat is, of course, in the processing stage. So you've got here chicken breast not coated, very little salt, chicken breast coated, quite a lot of salt because they're chucking it into the coating to make it more flavoured, more delicious. Um, <laughs> so, again, salt, um, meat and meat products, particularly processed meat, big contributor to the salt levels in the diet. And what happens when you eat salt? Your blood pressure goes up. So this, again, is here meta-analyses here of the relationship between amount of salt consumption and blood pressure changes in non-potensive people and hypertensive people. The way they've measured the uh, salt content here is in urinary sodium intakes. So what they do is they just collect 24 hours worth of urine from individuals and they can analyse that and see how much sodium was in it. Uh, but it doesn't translate very well to, to how much salt is actually in the diet. So I've kind of stuck something over the top of that. This is roughly... The difference if, if you reduce your salt content by 2 grams a day up to reducing it to about 7.5 grams a day and how much impact that would have on blood pressure levels. And the approximate relationship is that if you, if you, reduce, um, if you reduce your salt content by quite a lot, actually, by 4 grams a day, you'll get a reduction of about 3 millimetres of, of mercury of, um, of um, systolic blood pressure in non-intensive patients. So there's some relationship there. Oh, skipped on a couple. Um, and this is the equivalent from, again, from the prospective studies cohort of blood pressure levels and risk for heart disease and for stroke. Um, more clear for stroke, okay, it's a big, big contributor to stroke, it's blood pressure levels. Um, this is no association, we're all to the left of that for stroke, CHD and for other vascular diseases. We know that blood pressure is a big predictor of mortality from cardiovascular disease. So there's a suggestion there that meat should be associated, essentially, with cardiovascular diseases. We know it's high in saturated fat. We know it's high in salt. So if you're eating a lot of these, you're probably going to be dying more of cardiovascular disease. But when you go and measure it directly, it's a bit, for a start, it's a little bit more tricky to measure because you've got to rely on good measures of usual dietary intake, which are kind of hard to come across. Um, and then there's an awful lot of other things that can kind of get in the way. Because a, meat, a, a diet high in meat and a diet low in meat, they're different for a lot of different reasons. The sort of people who are eating a lot of meat and the sort of people who are eating a lot of meat, uh, not very much meat, they're going to be different kind of people. So when you're looking at actual consumption of products, you might get a little bit of a different story. But this is, this is summing it up as best as they can. This is a very recent meta-analysis, just came out last year, to try to identify different studies where you can actually measure specific amounts of meat consumption in high meat diets and low meat diets and get some sort of risk relationship between meat consumption and cardiovascular disease. And this is the CHD. And the suggestion is no relationship between CHD and red meat, which is perhaps not what you expect. It's red meat. It's the kind of really high saturated fat content meat. Some relationship with processed meat, kind of small 
relationship there, 40% increased risk, well that's quite big actually, 40% increased risk for every 50 grams per day extra processed meat, and then the total meat is obviously somewhere in between the two of those. For stroke, again, some relationship with red meat, which is perhaps a bit surprising, because we're not talking about processed meat there, so not the kind of meat that's full of, of uh, salt. With processed meat, kind of strong, 40% increase risk of stroke there, and again, some of kind of total meat in between the two of them. And also some suggestion of um, increased risk of diabetes with consumed extra consumption of red meat and processed meat. But these are the relationships if all other dietary factors have kind of been adjusted for. So this is supposed to be the best estimate we've got of if your diet remains the same, but you just increase an extra 50 grams of processed meat, just increase an extra 100 grams of red meat, what's happening to your risk? So keep other things like fruit and vegetable content con content constant at this point. It's also a suggestion that meat is, is linked with some cancers, particularly colorectal cancer. Um, this is um, the World Cancer Research Fund periodically updates these meta-analyses, which looks at all the evidence of diet and physical activity in relationship with different cancers from different sites. And they think there's convincing evidence that both red meat and processed meat is re related with colorectal cancer. I'm not quite sure what these things are, but they suggest that that's because of nitrites, heterocyclic amines, and polycyclic aromatic, aromatic hydrocarbons, which are introduced to the processing stage. Not sure why you would add those, really. Perhaps they're really tasty or something, but, uh, but certainly they, they seem to be the things that they're, they're pointing the things at as known carcinogens, which could be introduced at those stage. And again, from uh, the meta-analyses, we see a kind of small increased risk for both red meat consumption and colorectal cancer and uh, processed meat consumption. So fruit and vegetables. Again, now this is a kind of different story really. So, so again, previously with all those kind of meta-analyses we were doing there, the idea was to say if you keep everything else constant and you just change the meat content, then are we increasing or decreasing risk of disease? But we know that that's not the case. I, Meat consumption, the diet, it, it is not like something like smoking or alcohol, where you can just kind of adjust the level of, of consumption in isolation of other things. You've got to eat a certain amount of calories to get by, yeah? And if you reduce the amount of calories that you're going to consume from meat, then you've got to replace that with something else. Your diet is going to be intrinsically quite different. And if you look at this, the, uh, the best measure that we've got at the moment of uh, consumption of foods in the UK is from something called the National Diet and Nutrition Survey. Last time they did it really well was in 2000, 2001. So it's about 10 years old now. But basically what they did was they recruited about 1,500 people and they asked them to weigh uh, everything they eat for a, for a week and write down what it is. So it's not just that they've got to write down what they're eating, they've also got to weigh so they know exactly how much they're eating. So it's quite a, a burden uh, on the participants to be in this study, which is why they don't do it very often because it's kind of hard to recruit people to be in it. But it's their best estimate of what people actually eat as opposed to what people buy in terms of food and then might throw in the bin. Um, and if you look at it, I've, I've separated it out here in two ways, basically to, to, to look at the difference in, in fruit and vegetable consumption between high meat consumers and low meat consumers. So high meat consumption here and low meat consumption is just based on the top 25% of people in terms of meat consumption and the bottom 25%. Um, and just looked at their fruit and vegetable consumption and... That's the top figure there, so in terms of calories per day, 890 calories per day in consumption in, in low meat consumers compared to only 484 
calories per day and high meat consumers. And that's the same if you strip out the vegetarians, although there were very little vegetarians in this study, so it doesn't change the, the, the numbers that much. But that isn't just a big skew because vegetarians eat a massive amount of fruit and vegetables. Basically, the, the, the story here is the more meat that you eat, the less space you've got in the diet for other things that might be beneficial, like fruit and veg, like cereals, which increase the fibre content. And that's something that perhaps is a little bit understudied in terms of the health benefits of reduced meat consumption, which kind of mainly be, uh, focuses on those kind of meta-analyses of um, that just looking just at changing meat consumption patterns. And again, you look in the analysis. I mean, this is this is a pretty common story that, that's well known, which is that of course fruit and vegetable consumption is beneficial to health. So the lines here. This is for coronary heart disease on the left, stroke on the right, and the little diamonds are left of one, which means that for more fruit and vegetables that you eat, the less chance you have of dying of coronary heart disease or stroke. Okay, so that's a kind of whistle-stop tour of uh, the impact of meat and health. So uh, what about meat and greenhouse gases? Why might that also be a, a challenge that should be addressed? Okay, well, um, there's been a lot of interest and a lot of um, reviews of late um, and of the evidence of the impact of agriculture on, on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, Agriculture is quite an interesting sector because whereas most other sectors, when you talk about greenhouse gas emissions, you're talking essentially about carbon dioxide emissions. Um, agriculture is completely different. Carbon dioxide has a very small impact, really, when it comes to agriculture. And it's much more about um, nitrous oxide and methane uh, releases. Um, that it's released essentially from the soil when you're ploughing it up to kind of plant foods and from cows and sheep farting, essentially, um, generating methane in their stomach and emitting it into the atmosphere. Um, and it's a big deal. So obviously, we eat a lot of food on this planet. Um, so obviously, it has quite a big impact in terms of our, our climate change footprint, greenhouse gas emission footprint. Um, the best estimate that is in the UK, if you look at all the products that are consumed in the UK and measure the greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with them, about one-fifth of them are due to food. And of those ones that are due to food, about 80% of those are due to livestock. It's about meat and dairy, really. Um, where are they coming from? Well, this is the bit, this is the bit of carbon dioxide on farm fossil use, 1%. So that's the oil it takes to drive your uh, tractor around, or, or whatever, and, and, and bring, in the, uh, bring in the milk, I suppose. Um, most of it, 25% here, that's your... Methane emissions from from uh, from from cows and from sheep, um, manure or artificial fertilisers that you put on the land releases nitrogen. That's nitrous oxide going into the atmosphere. And a big chunk here in terms of deforestation, desertification. Now that's much more about um, something that I'm not really going to go into today, but I'm sure will get picked up in the rest of the seminar series, and certainly get picked up in the module, which is about. Um, the need to kind of explore, because, because raising cattle, because raising meat has such a bigger land footprint than other crops. If you've got an expansion in terms of the amount of meat that's being consumed, you've got to find more land to do that. And the way that they're finding more land at the moment is mostly by kind of cutting down the Amazon rainforest. So you're getting a big impact there in terms of removing carbon sinks, removing ways that carbon can be removed from, from um, the atmosphere. You know, just kind of just to, to grow cattle. 
So this is a relationship between um, wealth of countries and amount of meat consumption within those countries. And probably as you would have guessed, you know, the richer countries are the bigger meat consumers. Right up there on the top is USA in terms of meat consumption. Over 120 kilograms of meat per year. I don't know what 120 kilograms of meat looks like, but I don't think I want to either. That's, that worries me a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> but there's a pretty a, a good association there. And, and as, as countries are getting wealthier, they're probably going to be eating a great amount of meat in their diet. It's, it's a kind of... It's a, it's a status thing, it's a more expensive way of getting your calories, it goes with, with, with raised income within countries. Um, but the developed world are being caught up by the developing world. This is an estimate of trends in, in meat and dairy consumption um, in different regions of the world, in different kind of groupings of countries in terms of uh, areas and areas development. The top line is the developed world there, um, but the, the, some of the other lines there indicate kind of the increased consumption of meat that's going to be expected in regions like China um, over the coming years. And that gives us a big potential problem. Because it's not just about greenhouse gas emissions. It's about, okay, if we're going to have a massive increase in the consumption of meat, how are we going to find the land that supports that? Yeah? Is that going to be cutting down on crops for other crops for human consumption? How do we kind of, how do we kind of square that circle in the future if these trends go on? So... What do we do about that then? Increased meat consumption and, uh, and greenhouse gas emissions and land use. Can we find a kind of technological solution that says, okay, well, perhaps we can do the equivalent of increasing yields. Perhaps we can find it a more efficient way to kind of reduce the impact of meat and dairy in order to be able to allow us to eat this small amount of meat and, um, and still be able to do it within kind of sustainable kind of boundaries. Um, and there's a lot of suggested ways that you could reduce the impact of, of meat, the production of meat, introduce efficiencies. And I know very little about these, but luckily someone else has had a good look at them and seen what their potential impact is in terms of efficiency um, in the livestock sector. And there's all these different measures here, like liquid manure, pH reduction to reduce ammonia emissions, which I know very little about. But I did understand the answer to this paper, which was, can technology efficiency substantially reduce greenhouse gas emissions from meat? No, uh, unfortunately not. The, the conclusion was large reductions in the overall impact, overall impacts from meat and dairy products cannot be obtained from improvement options alone. What needed is targeting the level and mode of consumption. So there seems to be general agreement that the amount of meat that we're eating on the planet, particularly if trends continue, is unsustainable and it has to be kind of reduced. Uh, we can't just find a technological fix to this or an efficiency fix. But again, not all meat has the same footprint. Okay? So this is, this is measures here of uh, emissions intensity. So it's, the, it's essentially greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram of product. And again, it's sheep and cows are the big offenders here. The ruminants, the ones that produce the methane. Pigs and poultry, much lower. All, all meat, though, pigs, poultry, sheep and cows, all have a much, much, much higher Im impact than fruit and vegetables. And, uh, Tomatoes sticking out here like a sore thumb. Tomatoes is the exception there, which is mainly because tomatoes in this country are growing in greenhouses, um, which take kind of power year-round to kind of heat them up in order to grow them. And that's, so that's why they've got the biggest green. This green is carbon dioxide emissions. So that's just to heat the greenhouses. So tomatoes aside, you've got like sort of meat as a hundredfold higher impact in terms of greenhouse gas emissions than fruit and vegetables. 
you know where cheese would fit on that? Yeah, pretty much around milk, but a bit higher because I did a little bit for the um, for the processing into cheese. But what basically, what colours do we can't see them? Yeah, sorry, it's, it's not showing up great, is it? This is different kinds of emissions. This is green is carbon dioxide, red is methane, blue is nitrous oxide, and purple is secondary nitrous oxide. So essentially, a bit more nitrous oxide. Um, yeah, so I mean, this is, this is the real killer here. The nitrous oxide is quite interesting with the, um, with the, the beef and the, uh, and the sheep meat. <coughs> nitrous oxide is essentially released when you put manure onto to land. Yeah? And it's usually kind of considered that um, one of the advantages of raising cows or sheep is that you just stick them out on pasture land. You don't have to do anything to the land, so you're not releasing any more carbon or nitrous oxide into the land for sheep and cows that are just put out to pasture, essentially. And essentially, that's kind of true, except for the fact that it's, it's usual practice these days, actually, to put manure on pasture land in order to raise kind of more luscious grass or to, to feed the cows more quickly. So a lot of people say, oh, yeah, in the perfect world, you just stick them out to pasture and you wouldn't have that nitrous oxide reduction. And maybe that's true, but it's certainly not the case with how cows and sheep are raised at the moment. Yes? Is, is this video to livestock raised in this is, yeah, this is from um, the um, fourth carbon budget for the UK, put together by the Committee on Climate Change. So what this is, is for sheep and beef that's consumed in the UK, but it could have been produced anywhere in the world. So a lot of this beef will have been produced in Brazil, but eaten in, in the UK. Because there's different ways that you can count, either you count just food that's produced in your own borders, and it doesn't matter where it's eaten, or you count food that's eaten in your borders, and it doesn't matter where it's produced. And this is the second of the way. Because yeah. different countries do produce meat differently. Yes, yeah, that's certainly true. But this is, this is counting imports and exports, but anything that's eaten within the UK. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of the Committee on Climate Change, so they developed three scenarios. They wanted to look at, okay, can we develop kind of... Well, where... where, where what should we be looking to do in order to lower the greenhouse gas emission and also the land impact of the livestock sector for the UK? So they came up with three scenarios. Now, they're kind of keen to say these aren't scenarios that they're not recommending any of these scenarios, but they're just using them as kind of examples in order to get some data out the end to say which direction are these kind of arrows kind of going in. Um, so the ones that they looked in particularly was scenario one was what if we reduce all meat and dairy products by 50% and replace them by fruits, vegetables and cereals? The second one was to say, okay, well, what if we keep fruit, vegetables and cereals around the same but stop eating red meat and move completely to white meat? And the third one was a 50% reduction in just white meat supply balanced by plant commodities. So they didn't do one about red meat there, they just did one about white meat because that was mainly their interest in kind of land use for supporting white meat production. White meat here and red meat, white meat's... Pigs and poultry, red meat is beef and sheep. Now, okay, um, and the colours are coming out fantastic here either. Um, basically, it's, they did lots of really in depth analysis to kind of really kind of get an impact of what, what's happening here in terms of when you shift from, from one diet to the other. So, basically, it's about what land do you open up if you stop producing sheep and, 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 and um, and cows and pigs and poultry, and what can that land be used for? So they really went quite in-depth to it. So, um, so a lot of um, land which currently um, produces lamb in the UK, like sort of hill farms in Wales, couldn't be used to, to grow crops on, 
Yeah, you couldn't just convert them straight over. This is taking this into account. So it's about saying, okay, well, if you reduced it, what happens with the land that's made free? What can you do with it? And if you convert, what you do with it? And then you apply kind of greenhouse gas emission kind of efficiencies along those lines. What's the end result that kind of comes out of it? So they broke it down to a lot of different kind of factors, saying, okay, we change these vectors here and, and, uh, and, 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 and top it all up in the end. And the final results essentially were... That, um, that if you had that kind of 50% reduction in all meat and dairy products, then you'd reduce greenhouse gas emissions by about 20%, 19% there. The, the other one there, reducing from red to white meat, you reduce emissions by about 10%. This is just emissions from the food sector. Sorry, just emissions from livestock, I should say, not emissions overall, obviously. Um, and a more limited impact if you're just reducing white meat consumption. So just 3% reduction there. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to say, okay... So you can potentially have quite a lot of impact there in terms of emissions from livestock if you do this big change in, in dietary scenario. Um, would you have equivalent health impacts? Okay. Are, are, these, are these also healthy diets that are being described here by the climate change? Are they pointing in the same direction? Would you have the um, equivalent... Is it, would you get the same sort of ranking from scenario one best, scenario two second, and scenario three next... <coughs> if you looked at it from a health impact rather than a, um, rather than a greenhouse gas emission impact. Because then you could start sort of aligning and saying, OK, well, where's the best co-benefits here? Where should we be aiming if we want to be improving health at the same time as improving greenhouse gas emissions? Uh, doesn't include greenhouse gas emissions due to land change. <laughs> Not that important. Um, so we wanted to model that, basically. Now, we developed a model in our group. It's called Diatron. Um, which estimates population changes in cardiovascular and cancer mortality as a result of changes in population average nutritional intakes. Now, it's based, essentially, on um, a lot of the science that we did a review earlier on in terms of meat and health. So it's taking parameters from meta-analyses and saying, OK, well, if that accounts, if we're talking about this is the change in blood pressure as a re result of changes in salt intake, if we change salt intake, if we change the distribution of salt intake, within the UK, what will be the change in blood pressure, and then what will be the change in health outcomes as a result of that. So it allows us to kind of put in counterfactual diets and say, what would be the impact of achieving these diets on health outcomes? And it looks like this. These, these are the elements that are kind of included. So we have fruit and vegetables, which are linked with CHD, stroke, and three cancers. Fibre, which is linked with coronary heart disease. Range of fatty acids, which changes blood cholesterol levels, which then affects CHD and stroke. Salt, which goes, changes your blood pressure levels, changes the range of cardiovascular diseases, and also has a direct link with stomach cancer, although a very limited one. Um, and also um, energy balance, which changes obesity levels, and obesity has a big impact on a hell of a lot of different uh, uh, health outcomes. And essentially it kind of sits within a kind of broader um, behavioural risk factor model, which also looks at physical activity, smoking and alcohol consumption, but the stuff I'm going to be talking about today is only concerned about diets. It's just looking at essentially this kind of way of saying, if you change diet, what happens with your intermediate risk factors? So you kind of like medical, biological risk factors for health. And then what actually happens to health outcomes as a long run? Now, it's all done kind of cross-sectionally. So there's nothing in here about how long it would take in order to achieve these health gains. Yeah? It's just saying, let's imagine that we didn't have the current situation with the diet that we currently consume, but we had a different one. When we get to a kind of steady state, what would be the change in health outcomes? 
that we developed later to kind of put a kind of time element into it, but we're not at that stage yet. As I say, the way we, we built it, we tried to be kind of really systematic with the way we were building it. The, re the reason why we wanted to kind of cut down to a minimum the amount of double counting that's in the model. So we wanted to cut down the, the risk of saying, okay, there's, um, for example, you know, the impact of salt on, on cardiovascular disease uh, is either via blood pressure or independent of blood pressure. We wanted to go only one route, so we're not kind of double counting those elements. And by sticking them all in at the same time, we can combine a kind of what would happen if you change a lot of different dietary parameters at the same time, and you don't double count the results that come out at the end of it. So you can only save one life once, basically. You can't save the same life by changing fruit and vegetable consumption and salt and saturated fat at the same time. So this is how we basically, this is just saying that we identified the parameters that go into the model only using meta-analyses uh, from the medical literature. Um, and what you need to make it run is, um, for whichever population you want to use, is an estimate of the um, age and sex-specific numbers of cardiovascular cancer uh, plus diabetes and kidney disease if you're doing particular analyses, number of mortalities in your country, essentially. Um, the current nutritional quality for a baseline diet, say, well, this is what we're currently achieving in terms of nutritional quality. Uh, the distribution of obesity in the population and then a kind of counterfactual diet that you want to make it achieve. So there's an example of how it works oh, and then it runs an uncertainty analysis. You can get confidence intervals around this as well, which basically what it does is it says, okay, well, let's run this model 5,000 times, but each of the parameters will let them vary according to the distribution that's described in the literature. And so you get a slightly different answer each time because it kind of jumps around. And then you just take the 95% confidence intervals of those. So an example of how it works, we wanted to, to use the model to say what would happen in the UK if the UK suddenly met dietary targets for fruit and veg, for salt, for fibre, and for saturated fat intake, okay? So the population we were interested in was the UK. The health outcome we were interested in was CHD stroke and cancer deaths, which you can just get from the Office of National Statistics and plug them into the model. The baseline diet we were using was, uh, we could use it for a variety of places. We, we took the family food survey, because it happens to be kind of useful for the way that we kind of put the model together. Um, and the model diet, as I said, we're going to put in the dietary targets for the UK, which are five portions a day of fruit and veg, 18 grams a day of fibre, 33% of energy for total fat, 10% of energy for saturated fat, and 6 grams a day for salt. Um, and you get these results that come out at the end of it. You get really quite big impact, really. The, um, if you combine all deaths together, if we achieve the dietary targets, you're saving about 33,000 lives uh, every year. And to put that in perspective, the total number of CHD stroke and diet-related cancers that are available, that, are, that happen each year in the UK, is about 230,000. It's about 30,000 of those potentially you could be averting if you're achieving these, um, these health targets. It still seems like quite a big number, and the reason why is because we're quite far off reaching those dietary targets. So it's not exactly very realistic that we're going to meet these targets anytime soon. Um, particularly fruit and veg, we're currently eating on average about three portions of fruit and veg a day, so it gets up to five portions of fruit and veg a day. It's almost like a doubling of what we're currently eating. So it's a big change that we're talking about that the model's estimating here. Most of the difference here from coronary heart disease some difference from, from stroke and cancer. So that's a kind of example of how it works. And the way it works, it, it relies on a number of assumptions. Perhaps I'll just skip through, actually, because we're running on in time a bit. I can talk about assumptions to anyone afterwards if they're interested. So what we wanted to do is to say, let's, um, let's see what happens if you achieve the, the three different dietary scenarios described by the Committee on Climate Change. 
So again, so the population we're going to be interested in is the UK. Health outcome data, again, same, CHD stroke from the uh, Office of National Statistics. Again, baseline diet from the Family Food Survey. But the counterfactual diet is a bit more complicated. Okay? It's very simple when you're talking about achieving dietary targets because you're just saying, okay, well, it's, it, the, the, the counterfactual diet is, is described very well. Let's increase fruit and vegetable intake by this. If you start saying, okay, well, let's reduce meat consumption by 50%, You've got to start thinking, well, what does that mean to saturated fat levels? What does that mean to salt levels? How do you get to that level? So essentially what we had to do, the problem was we had to get from, from, from this, which is a kind of you know, breakdown of the production of food in terms of livestock, cereals, fruit and veg, to this, which is a breakdown of consumption of foods within the diet. And then we had to go one step further and get it into this, which is a kind of breakdown Again, it's not come through perfectly here. A breakdown of nutrients within the diet. So how do changes in the, the, the amount of production of food in the diet, how is that going to play through in terms of changes in the nutritional quality of the diet? And this is just a, a pie chart about food that I like. <laughs> I thought it was convenient at that point with three other pie charts for food. Um, <laughs> so the way we did it, basically, is um, conveniently the Family Food Survey, uh, what it does is it measures... The, um, the way it measures intake of, of nutrients within food is it, it breaks all foods down into about 250 different categories, like lamb chops, like beef veal, like ox liver and things like that. And they each have a nutritional quality that's associated with them. So fortunately for us, the Family Food Survey does some of that job for us. Okay? So it breaks it down and says, okay, well, this is the amount of saturated fat that's consumed in the diet, the average diet in the UK that comes specifically from lamb chops. So what we can do is we can say, okay, well, if you increase, if you decrease, sorry, the consumption of lamb chops by 50% in line with the Committee on Climate Change uh, dietary scenario, then you can reduce this amount of saturated fat by 50%. You do that across all the different food categories, and you get your kind of modelled counterfactual diet. So that was a, a big thing to kind of work that through to get the diet to work. There's some limitations in doing that, because some of these categories are clearly, you know, a combination of different food co consumption groups, like pizza, you know, which is bread, tomatoes, a bit of meat on there and everything like that. But largely, it gives us a kind of satisfactory kind of breakdown. So if you do that and you stick it into the model, this is how it works, basically. Um, so scenario one, which is the reduction of all meat by 50% and replaced by fruit, vegetable and cereals, save around about um, 37,000 lives, mostly from cardiovascular disease, some from cancer. Scenario two, which is shifting red meat to white meat, limited impact on health, positive impact, so about 2,000 lives. Uh, scenario three, which is again <laughs> reduction of white meat consumption and replacement with fruit, vegetables, and cereals, good impact there, saving about 10,000 lives, something like that. So, what do we conclude from these results? Well, first of all, there's kind of broad alignment there between the kind of um, the environmental sustainability goals and the, the public health goals. They're all pointing in the right direction. If you achieved any of these dietary scenarios, you achieve improvements in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and improvements in terms of public health. So there's some broad alignment there, but they don't entirely agree with each other. Okay? So, um, so, for example, um, in the greenhouse gas emission scenarios, you're better off swapping from red meat to white meat, but in terms of public health, you're better off swapping all meat and getting rid of it all for fruit and vegetables. Um, so the broad kind of message is, if you replace red meat with white meat, yeah, that's, that's quite good in terms of gross gas emissions and in terms of health. But if you replace red meat with fruit, veg and cereals, that's even better for both. And if you replace red meat and white meat, so all meat with fruit, veg and cereals, that's the best you can do. Okay? That's the best outcome um, for both public health 
and for greenhouse gas emissions. Well, are the results consistent with what we showed earlier in terms of meat and health? Yeah, I think they are broadly. Um, essentially, if you remember, we were saying that um, the, the, the relationship between meat consumption and directly from meat consumption and health were kind of limited and probably went through via saturated fat and salt. And you see, with these scenarios, most of the change that comes through is because of the massively increased consumption of fruit and veg that's, that's related to that. So, um, so that's why you're getting these big health gains, because actually what they're predicting is a really big increase in fruit and veg consumption rather than a particular decrease in, in meat consumption, which has something to do with it. You get reduced saturated fat consumption, you get reduced salt consumption, which gets you some of the way, but most of the way you're getting there is because of the changes in fruit and vegetables. How do we get there? Okay. So one problem is you could say, well, these dietary scenarios, they're, they're completely implausible. Yeah? They're just kind of plucked out the air. And it's true, they are. The Committee on Climate Change, they weren't too concerned about whether they're achievable or not. They just wanted something to plug into their models to get some results out. So we had a look to see, okay, well, these, climate, these Committee on Climate Change scenarios, is anyone actually achieving them at the moment within the UK? So again, this is going back to the National Diet and Nutrition Survey. And what we did is we, um, we, we looked at the left-hand column here. This is the breakdown of the diet as described exactly by the Committee on Climate Change for scenario one. And what we did is we found low meat and dairy consumers within the National Diet and Nutrition Survey and looked at what their diet was like. And it's not that bad, it's not that similar. It's, it's quite similar, really. Um, you've got a massive increase in, in fruit and vegetable consumption in people who are currently eating lower amounts of fruit and vegetables. You get some, sorry, of meat. You get some increase in, in cereals. So it's pretty much in line with what it is they're suggesting. So in other words, you do have some people in the National Diet and Nutrition Survey are currently eating this dietary scenario already. So it seems like a plausible scenario in that some people currently eat it. The problem is it's only 5% of the people in the UK. So how do you get the other 95% of people to kind of go along in that direction? Well, there's a few options, and I'm, I'm closing it up now, so I'll just put question marks on the end here, because I don't know what the answer is, really. How do we get there? Individual responsibility. That seems to be kind of the flavour of the day in terms of public health. Andrew Lansley's paper on healthy lives and healthy people seems to be saying that uh, obesity is all our fault, so, uh, so we should all take responsibility to stop eating as much food. Similar sort of message from things like Meat Free Monday campaigns. Okay, it increases awareness, but it puts the responsibility on the individual. New government advice, perhaps. At the moment, the government has advice about what foods we should be eating in the UK. Food-based dietary guidelines, they're called. But they don't take account in the slightest of sustainability issues. Maybe they should do. Maybe they should be talking about reducing meat consumption in order to reduce the kind of um, carbon footprint of, of the food that we eat. Carbon labelling. Well, there's been a big fuss about nutrition labelling in the UK of late, and there's been... been a lot of hard work to try and introduce traffic light labels to tell people about the nutritional quality of foods. And we don't really know what the impact of that has been, whether it's actually guiding people to eat healthier foods. Would sticking carbon footprints on there as well make them a bit more complicated? Would that help? Maybe. I'm not sure. Or hit people in the pocket. Fat taxes, carbon taxes. They might be kind of the same thing, really. Um, would, would that be a kind of driver to change people's consumption levels. Again, there's very little evidence out there about whether they'd be successful. So there's just some options there, really, rather than, rather than actual results. And uh, I think I'll leave it there. So uh, thank you very much.